You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you are the word made flesh. And so we ask now, even as we turn to scripture, that you would be present in our midst, that you would be the one opening our eyes and opening our minds and opening, above all else, our hearts to you once again this morning. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that through the word written, would you, the word made flesh, jump off the page at us? Would you um, remind us, uh, renew us once again, remind us of your death on our behalf, um, renew us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and empower us for the work of ministry, um, for um, being your hands and feet to a world in need. Give us strength, give us courage, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. This is part four of four on First John. And so um, I don't know if some of you noticed this, but instead of going through chronologically or in terms of chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, like you would normally do, like a normal person would do, well, this is John, John's letter is written in a different way than a lot of scripture is written in that John is not a linear thinker. And I appreciate this as someone who also is not a linear thinker. He does not go one, two, three, four, five, A, B, C, D, E. He rather is going to jump around a lot. And one of the ways, I think one of the most flattering ways of describing his method is to say that he is like a symphony writer. It's as though he has introduced a musical theme and then he's going to drop that theme and pick up another theme, and then he's going to come back and reintroduce the theme again, and he'll embellish it a little bit. He'll add some new information, even as he um, says once again what he has already said. And so what you find in John is a lot of repetition. Instead of being linear, you could say it's almost um, circular or spiral. I prefer spiral to circular because he'll say it, He'll come back around, he'll say it again, but he adds something else, so it's almost like you're going somewhere. You still do feel like you're going somewhere. He comes back around, he says the same thing, and he adds a little bit more. So what I've tried to do is um, break it down four separate strains of thought of things that he's saying, four different points that are really important that he's making. So in our first class, I talked about how um, John is so keen to tell, um, to show what it is, to what it means to be a Christian, that part of being a Christian, and a major part, part involves walking in the light, which is, yes, about how we live, but it's also about the way we speak and the way we deal with truth. And so as Christians, we are called to be ones who tr tell the truth. And for John, the truth stands in stark contrast to lies, just like light stands in stark contrast to darkness. And he will go on to say, love stands in stark contrast to hate, and life stands in stark contrast to death. He's going to um, set up these dual approaches. Um, but for him, truth is so important. And the truth is specifically the truth about who Jesus is. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he shows that. And then he also goes on to say that Jesus is the Savior. And the way he talks about Jesus being our Savior is he uses two big words, um, that he is our advocate and he is our propitiation. He is the one interceding for us, just as Hebrews says he is the great high priest. He is also um, the, the victim in the sacrificial feast, as they say, or the um, the offering, the propitiation, the actual lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the offering for sin that atones for our guilt. And so Christians are ones who tell the truth, not just at the beginning of our life of faith, but every day, all throughout our life of faith, we tell the truth about who Jesus is. We confess 
the truth about who he is. Um, but then we also confess the truth about ourselves. And part of confessing the truth about ourselves is to say we are ones who need a savior. We are ones who all too often don't walk in the light. In fact, the darkness is within us, um, as John would say. There is sin within us. And so if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so um, as uh, Christians, being truth tellers means that we tell the truth about ourselves, that we need a Savior, that we too are sinners. Um, So we talked about that in the first week. The second week, we talked about love. And love is all throughout this gospel. If you did a word search, you'd see love like every other verse. He uses that word so much. And he's talking about loving horizontally. He's commanding those first Christians to love, to live out their life of faith, in particular in the way they live horizontally in relationship with each other. And what does that mean? Except it means um, that, that, first of all, that involves keeping the law. All of the law is summed up in that command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, So he's echoing Jesus. He's echoing Paul also when he says that. And Jesus, when he said that in the Gospels, was echoing uh, the Old Testament, was echoing Leviticus. And so um, John is echoing that truth that to live out love for neighbor is living out the full commandments of the law. Um, But it's also, he says, how? How do we do this? Well, again, we do this by watching the example of Jesus. Jesus' example of laying down his life on behalf of those he loved. Um, That is what love is, that um, God would lay down his life for us. And so that's a final component. And I talked about that um, a little bit two weeks ago and also last week. In this is love. This is this wonderful verse from chapter 4. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved. Again, we're beloved not because of anything lovely in ourselves, but we're beloved because God has poured himself out for us in love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you hear the ought, the law in there? But the grace precedes the law. Um, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That horizontal component of loving each other is preceded always by the vertical component of God's one-way love for us, that he loved us even when we were unlovely, um, even when we were sinners. And so we are beloved not because of any merit of our own. And then because he has first loved us, he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, causes us to turn around miraculously and love our brother, to love in word and deed, to love in spirit and truth, to love as he has loved us. So that was two weeks ago. And then last week we looked at what it means to be children of God, that children of God are ones who abide in him. God abides in us and we abide in him. God abides in us because of his indwelling spirit made possible because of Jesus's atoning death. And so when God loves us in that one way, Um, unconditional way. He also adopts us as his own children. We don't have the right to become his children on our own, but he chooses us. He elects us to be his children. Um, His love goes so far as to calling us his own. And then as a part of that, he puts his nature within us. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that we then would keep the law despite ourselves, despite our sinful selves. Somehow, miraculously, God gives us his spirit and then um, we end up obeying his law voluntarily with a willing and free spirit instead of out of compulsion or out of fear of judgment. Okay, any thoughts about that? I'm going to take a breath. Anything you want to add, especially if you've been here the last few weeks or if you've been, I've encouraged everyone to try to read through the whole letter. It's five short chapters. 
it's really helpful to read through the whole thing in one sitting if you can because then you see the way John's thought um, goes to conclusion in a spiral way instead of a linear way. Any thoughts or observations? Okay. I'll wait one more second just so anyone who's shy. <laughs> okay. Well, great. Well, let's go on. We're going to read, last week we read this, uh, these few verses as we were talking about abiding and part of being a child of God involves abiding in him and he abides in us and we abide in him. There's that idea of remaining, of resting and staying in, uh, with him. And, um, and that's going to be important in just a minute. We'll see why. But now, um, with all of these positive things that Paul, or that John has been saying, there is a flip side to all of what he's been saying. And today, I gave myself the big task of looking at the flip side. And so even as he talks about light, love, life, righteousness, obedience, um, on one side, truth, then on the other side, there's lies and sin, death, destruction, um, instead of the Holy Spirit, there's the spirit of the evil one, a spirit of error instead of a spirit of truth. And he goes into it. He does not shy away from talking about the flip side of all of the benefit of being in Jesus Christ. And all of the good stuff is in this world because of God's work on our behalf. He's going to talk also about sin. He's going to talk about the world. He even talks about the Antichrist or Antichrists. And yes, I will talk about that today. Whoa, how bold. And then he also talks about what it means that um, Jesus has overcome all of that on our behalf and what that means for us today. So let's start with sin. We already talked about sin a little bit. Well, last week we read this. Um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, this is Jesus, of course, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Well, so sin here, remember that sin is rebellion against God. It could be defined very easily as rebellion against God. Literally, it means missing the mark. And we know that sin is present even within us as Christians. Paul bears witness to this um, reality, especially in Romans 7, but in other places as well. And John has already borne witness to this fact. In the first part of John's letter in John 1 and 2, as I mentioned before, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, if we Christians still sin, then why is he saying that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning? Well, what is he talking about there? He's talking about habitual, unrepentant sin. And so we return back to week one. Part of being a Christian involves telling the truth about ourselves, taking inventory, um, repenting regularly, um, assuming I love um, thinking about, I don't love thinking about conflict, but if you ever have someone who comes to you and, you know, I think about it kind of clinically and removed from it in the minute, in the moment, it's horrible. But if you've ever been in the middle of a conflict or even been on the outskirts of a conflict and a friend has come to you or a spouse or a neighbor and said, so-and-so did blah, blah, blah. Isn't it so hard because you want to reassure that person? You want to say, oh, that was so terrible. But you also sometimes, sometimes you're like, yeah, yeah, but maybe you did something too. You know, there's, I, I really do think whenever there is almost, I don't want to say all the time, but I would say 85% of the time, or maybe if I'm bold, 90% of the time, or even 95% of the time, because of human nature, 
both people are involved in a conflict whenever there's a conflict. I always assume both people are at fault on some level. And for myself, even when I had thought that I was above board, now years later, I look back on conflicts that happened in my teens or my 20s, and I say, I really thought I was totally righteous in this situation. And in fact, I was self-righteous, and I didn't see my sin. And maybe my sin, oh, was only pride, <laughs> except that's the most pervasive of sins. That's the most habitual of sins, I think, for all of us. And so even looking back on those situations where I thought I was above board, when I realize that when I really look at it soberly and ask God to show me myself, I see, no, there was sin at work in me as well. I thought it was only the other person, but there was some kind of sin at work in me, even if it was not as obvious or not as overt, or in my mind, not as egregious as some kind of um, naysaying or abuse or neglect or um, whatever it might have been. Does that make sense? And so as Christians, we start with ourselves and we say, um, yeah, there might be something in me. I might have done something wrong, or I might have been self-righteous, or I might have been proud, or I might have been arrogant, or I might have done little things that I'm blind to, and yet I ask, Lord, would you show me my sin? I'm not afraid for you to show me my sin, because I know that when you show me my sin, you'll show me once again your grace for me, poured out, your love poured out for me on the cross. And so there's a boldness that comes with being a Christian, a boldness of telling on ourselves. And so there's this line, this is um, the practice of, of sinning habitually, of saying, I have no sin at all. I'm a whitewashed tomb, as Jesus would say about the Pharisees. Everything looks good on the outside, but inside it's all full of death and bones and uncleanness. Uh, all too often that's true of ourselves when we put a happy face on the world and say we have no sin. So again, uh, John is saying sin is there even for Christians. Um, sin is something that Christians experience, and yet Christians make a habitual practice of repenting and um, receiving grace once again. Uh, there is this sense in which sin is under the dominion of the devil. Sin is evil, and we forget about that sometimes, that yes, it's within us, and yet it's part of the inherent fallenness of the world. From the moment of Adam and Eve eating the fruit in the garden, the forbidden fruit, suddenly every one of us has this tainted spiritual DNA from our spiritual parents. And yes, sin is atoned for and we are forgiven and free at the moment of the cross. And yet throughout all of this life, we will experience sin in our lives, in our own selves, and in the, our loved ones until we die. And then I love to think about this as ones who have eternal life. We will die and our sin will die with us and we'll be raised to new life in Jesus Christ never to sin again. Oh, happy day. So sin is of the devil, and yet God has, in Jesus Christ, overcome sin in overcoming the devil, in overcoming, uh, in atoning for our sin and our guilt on the cross. So sin is part of this flip side. There's another part of this flip side. Oh, sorry. Sin is of the devil. This one verse, again, in 1 John, really under, underlines and underscores this reality. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, again, remember that habitual sin, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay. Does that make sense? Any thoughts about that? It's a little harsh to say that. When we sin, we're of the devil. And yet, thanks be to God, we're forgiven and free in Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, there's a flip side to love and the love of God, and that's the love of the world. So this flip side to, um, to love is defined by John in terms of loving the world. 
And for John, um, especially in John's gospel, but uh, in, in the Greek, the word world is translated directly as cosmos. And if I'm going to flip forward just a bit and then we'll go back and read that. Um, cosmos, if you think of cosmos, what do you think of? Yeah, the universe. Carl Sagan. Ooh, yeah. Stars and nebula and dwarf somethings. I don't know. Yeah, billions of stars and how wonderful and majestic and wide open the universe is, how much bigger it is than we ever thought it was. Well, that's not what, um, on one level, that is what is used um, when the New Testament writers use the world. They do mean that meaning uh, sometimes. Sometimes they mean all of the created order. So that's one of the first meanings, the whole creation. But they also specifically, and especially John, in his gospel and in his letters, means that part of creation that is in rebellion against its creator. Specifically, that part of creation that is in rebellion against its creator. It's almost as though John uses cosmos like a technical term for all that part of creation that is in rebellion against its creator. So let's go back and we'll read this verse. Um, before we read this verse, just remember that sin then, if, if sin is in us, um, sin is rebellion, it's a part of the world. It's part of the world that's on the inside of us. Ooh. Um, part of sinful creation that exists within us, um, fallen creation that exists within us. But here we're looking to at the, um, at the inside and outside aspects of the world. Um, does someone want to read 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, if you can see it all right? Great. Thank you, Jeff. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Thank you. What do you all see? With that technical de definition, how does it affect how you view this passage? Do you hear how it makes it make sense? If the world is that part of creation that is in rebellion against its creator, then this is going to make a lot more sense. Well, um, this, this concept of the world is used, again, 184 times in the New Testament. Little fun fact. But 80 of those times are in John's gospel in his letters. So almost half, which is pretty impressive. So in John's gospel, we find this definition used a lot. I'm going to go really quickly through this because, of course, I have more material than time. But cosmos in, God's in John's gospel, the, at, from the very beginning, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And you can even see how this definition of the world could include the, like what we would think of Carl Sagan, all of the galaxies. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. That fallen part of creation refused to acknowledge its creator in its midst. The world would not, did not know him. The ruler of the world is the evil one, um, but Jesus is the light of the world. The world is a dark place, but Jesus is the light of the world, as he says in John 9, 5, and also in 8, 12 in the gospel. And then also, um, the ruler of the world is the evil one. He says in the upper room with his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Jesus was about to be arrested, betrayed, arrested, tried, and crucified. And Jesus identifies that whole, all those events as being a part of the ruler of the world coming, the ruler of this world coming. 
I'm exercising dominion over him. Jesus succumbing to this kind of horrific suffering, this kind of betrayal, this evil that was done to him. Well, that is part of the devil's work. The ruler of this world is coming, and yet Jesus there, before it happens, is reassuring his disciples, he has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Even though the ruler of the world is doing this horrible thing, and the world is under the sway of the devil, even so, Jesus is saying, I am doing this so that the world may know that I love the Father. And we're going to hear more about that in a little bit. Well, even in John's letter, um, uh, he talks about how um, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are from God as believers in Jesus, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That whole part of creation that's under, um, uh, uh, under the fall is uh, under the dominion of the evil one. Well, um, again, Jesus says in the upper room, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And part of that involves righteousness. The world hates Jesus because he is righteous. And the world hates Christians when we are righteous. The world hates us when we're unrighteous as well, though. So, um, and with good cause. But, then, <laughs> but um, just think about the most righteous person that you've ever known. I, oh, I shouldn't say this. There's this um, one friend of my sister's once, and I won't say very much more, except that she was gorgeous. She was so beautiful. I mean, she was an opera singer, and she looked like a supermodel at the same time. And you wanted to hate her. I wanted to hate her. I'm sorry, that was loud. Wanted, that'll be on the recording. I wanted to hate her. But then she was so nice which made you kind of hate her even more, right? <laughs> it was like, oh, she's perfect inside and out. And she wasn't. I know she must have been sinful at some point, but I never saw it. She was just a beautiful person inside and out. And her righteousness made me um, recognize my own righteousness. Her outer perfection made me realize that I hadn't put on makeup and I was wearing my glasses and my hair was a mess or my clothes weren't up to snuff or I couldn't sing worth a dime. And, and then also I wasn't nearly as kind as she was. So we, the world hates um, righteousness. If you were in the world, see, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they, the world, persecuted me, Jesus, they will also persecute you. Okay, a couple more. Yes, please. Nancy. Yeah. This one. So we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I just thought of the word compassion. They, because they're under the power of the evil one, and we are too, we just all the more we can follow Jesus' lead and have compassion. Even though yes. they hate us, yes. and we hate because we have sin, yes. that compassion, yes. if we can. That's great. <laughs> if we can. Lean into that. Absolutely. And that that's part of living out that. that's part of living out God's love for the world. And we're gonna get into that in a moment. That's um, so hard because if you feel hate, then you start to fear. And if you yes. fear you can't reach out. And you and you back away to protect yourself. But I just um, saw the Star Wars movie last night. Oh, it's all in your mind. Light and dark but the, the compassion. Yeah. I mean that's just that's the yeah. kind of the key. Well even Jesus saying to turn the other cheek. Yeah. Right? right, that right there is part of that compassion. It's part of the world being the world, but then um, Christians, by the grace of God, living out the same kind of love that God has for the world. It's, it's so hard, and there's more about that in John's Gospel. So let me just um, finish this. There's some more about the world. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Um, 
Jesus, when he's lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to himself. And we have to end for when looking at John's gospel by looking at John 3.16. God so loved, for God so loved the world, we could all probably say it together, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see that it's God so loved the world? I get to, you get to probably see this on a billboard right now, especially this time of year, as people are um, bearing witness to Jesus right before Christmas, especially. How about understanding it in terms of not just creation, but God so loved that part of creation that was in rebellion against him. God so loved his two-year-old in a tantrum that he entered in and picked up that two-year-old and got you know, punched in the face. But that, that's essentially that kind of love in the midst of incredible hostility. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God comes to save, uh, in Jesus Christ, God comes to save the world. So there's that compassion. God has compassion on the world that hates him. And we also, as we are in him by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord will give us the strength to do the same, Lord God. Thank you for that, Nancy. Any other thoughts um, before we move on? We'll go back to John, 1 John 2. Um, going back to 1 John 2, again, there's this passage, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you see that antithesis? The love of the Father, God's love, is juxtaposed against the love of the world. And those two loves buy for attention um, within our sinful hearts. And John is telling them, don't love the world or the things in the world. And he breaks it down. What a great definition of what the world is. All that is in the world um, is, from, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And those things include this unholy trinity, as one, um, as one commentator says, um, this unholy trinity involves the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions. We could call this um, the lust of the flesh or the things that the body hankers for. Enough said, right? The desires of the eyes are almost parallel to the desires of the flesh, but it involves the lust of the eyes, what the eyes itch to see, as one commentator says. Um, and Jesus even points out that the eyes are prone to mislead us. There's this sense in this phrase of a visual decadence, a moral bankruptcy of the spiritually blinded heart. I think especially around Christmas time, we see a lot of things that we'd like to have, right? I don't know what's on your wish list, but a lot of the things on my wish list are totally uh, superficial. They they have to do with, um, not necessarily with basic necessities, but with um, desiring something more. And maybe they do have to do with basic necessities, but there's still um, something that happens in a rich person's world, if you think about it that way. I like to think about the way the rest of the world lives all around the globe, and that helps me realize just how wealthy we are here in the U.S. So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the third component, the arrogance of life, uh, the pride of life. This word life is literally bios. All the things in our life, not just our very self and our bodies like biology, bios, but also all the things that we identify ourselves by. Our whole identity, you could say, as it, as it is built by ourselves. All of our achievements, all of our possessions, even the pride in our own children, as much as we see them as our own achievements. So the arrogance of life includes what people toil to acquire, and especially those vain and ostentatious um, earthly goods that we seek to pursue. 
All of this is passing away. The world is passing away, but God's will abides forever. We see that in verse 17. The world is passing away, even as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. The things that are seen in this world, the stuff of this world, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Andrew got at that last week a little bit when he talked about, you know, what would you take from your house if there was a fire? It's a question I think I had running in my head from when I was a very little child, and they brought fire education to our elementary school, which is a bad thing for a child that thinks too much, because I forever after always had like an escape route in my house that I would go through in the event that there was a fire. I knew exactly what I'd do. I knew exactly what I'd grab. Then even in seminary, my the things I would grab changed. I really wanted to grab my Greek New Testament, because I thought, well, if it's Y2K, that was the new fire escape plan, <laughs> then I'm going to need a Greek New Testament, because we're not going to have translations and then we'll need to translate it so I'll be able to do that now that I have seminary superpowers that are now gone you know that kind of mindset but thinking about that what are the things that you would grab sometimes those things are things that have an eternal effect and sometimes they're things that are very transient but usually when we think about it in that way we would grab the most eternal things um, but all too often in the day in our day-to-day life we are drawn to the transient things the things that don't matter I also think about this because Scott and I moved recently. We moved from one apartment to the other. It was like the easiest move in the world. It was literally across the hallway. But just packing up our stuff, even to carry it over, I realized I'd been holding on to things from, for 20 years. And I, I, there's something good about moving. I, Lord willing, when I get to the end of my life, I have this goal of wanting to get rid of all of the stuff that my kids won't want before I die so that they don't have to sift through it and try to throw it away. Because if you've had a parent pass away, that's a big part of the aftermath of the grief is sifting through things. I want them to see only things that will make them smile too. Maybe that's part of it. I want to control what they see. But <laughs> but there is this sense in which we hold on to stuff that we don't need, this bios, these things um, that we have pride in that we don't really need. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a wonderful commentator on First John, I talked about him last week, says that the world could be understood as all of that that keeps us from glorifying God. If our chief goal is to glorify God, well, all of, of anything that keeps us from glorifying God, either within our hearts or outside of us, is involved in the world. And so there's a word from Jesus that speaks right into that. Even as we think about the things of the world, the things that we're drawn to, these, this unholy trinity that overcomes us, Jesus says, I have, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, is what he tells his disciples in the upper room just before his death. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has exercised his lordship over everything. I even, whenever there's something that I tend to idolize, um, we each have our own idol that we'll put in the place of God. God is so good about knocking them off their pedestals, isn't he? Um, Just like he did with the Old Testament literal idols, the the idols of the Canaanites. He knocks them down off off their pedestals when he was in their presence. And the same thing he does in our lives. And it's an incredibly painful thing. And yet, in the end, it's a good thing. It's a good and gracious thing. It's a way of him... um, overwhelming all of who we are, of him taking control of our lives in a very positive way for our benefit. Okay, any thoughts about that before I move on to the Antichrist? The world exists within us and outside of us, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. It, it, yeah, it seems like it's, uh, 
tell me if I'm reading too no, much please. into it, but you go back to yeah. the slides and the actual first John passage. Yeah. It seems like there's actually some nuance in verse 16, though. It's it's not necessarily phys- the physical things in the world. It's how we view them and yes. how we try to get them to serve us. Yes. That is bad. So it's yes. not. It's, it's that that contrast because I feel like for so long I've heard from various talking heads that yeah. the things themselves are bad yeah. and it's and that nuance that's not in here it seems nuanced it's not the things themselves that are bad it's the way we use them and the way we lust after them and the way we misuse them yes the evil's within us not within the stuff of this world thank you for underscoring that David because that that's not what I'm trying to say the things of this world are not in and of themselves bad and that's one of the earliest heresies, is to say this stuff, the matter of this world, is bad stuff. That's the Gnostic heresy, to say we must flee from the world and escape it. And Gnostics, because they thought that the matter of this world was bad, then the way to approach it was they would either um, flee the world and live a life of asceticism, engage, don't engage at all, run away from the world, um, block yourself barricade yourself in an ivory tower and don't have anything to do with the stuff of the world. I even think of it in the way that my good Christian college had a pledge for us to sign. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, even at Wheaton College in the late 90s. All of these things were a way of not engaging with the stuff of this world, but the problem of sin was within us still. <laughs> um, and, and you're right. So there's that fleeing from the world, but then there's also the other Gnostic her- aspect of Gnostic heresy is to go whole hog. None of it matters what we do in this body. That's that way of saying, if nothing matters in this body, then let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. So let's just live it up because it doesn't matter. And that's really where our culture is, isn't it? Uh, anything goes because nothing matters. So thank you, David. That was great. I'm going to tackle Antichrist in like five minutes. So <laughs> hold on to your hat. John goes on in that um, passage in 1 John 2. Um, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Anything you know, this is a troubling passage. Again, we're tackling all the troubling passages in one day. Well, have you heard of this word antichrist? It's used a lot of you um, in certain Christian circles to talk about things that will happen at the end times, right? And there's often this um, perspective that there will be one person that opposes Jesus in his church. And scripture bears witness to that fact. But John here is also using it in a plural form, which is really interesting. So um, uh, anything or anyone that is antichrist literally opposes Jesus Christ. Um, so even as we're used to hearing this being said of just one person at the end, um, in Second Thessalonians 2, it's the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this person at the end of all time that will um, oppose Jesus and his church will all even call himself God and will set himself up to be worshipped. So there is this sense that as Christians we, we will look 
we will keep our eyes out for someone like that. And yet, John is showing us that it's a broader category than just that. Literally, it could be anyone that opposes Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus echoes this, or Jesus um, taught about this before John ever did. In Matthew 24, we hear that Jesus taught his disciples to expect false prophets and false Christs, he says. Um, But John is the first one to put together this word antichrist in the Greek. Um, So again, it's more than just one person or one man. It's a human representation of the evil one. Um, The antichrist or those who are antichrist are of the devil. Um, They sin. They're lawless um, with this practice of sinning. And they come at the last hour of human history. They're seen as being an incarnation of evil. They seem even to be Christians but are not. They're betrayers like Judas. Um, How troubling is that? Um, But there's also one component. I'm going to add this in just one minute after we read chapter 2 that has to do with the word antichrist in the Greek that's going to be helpful for us. And it's this juxtaposition with anointing. So that's why I've underscored anointing here. John goes on in chapter 2. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. That could be your basic definition right there. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's this sense in which those who oppose Jesus Christ, who don't believe in his full divinity and his full humanity, are liars about the truth. They, for, they uh, deny the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, that he is the son, that he came in the flesh. And as they deny these truths, as they lie about these truths, they also end up leaving and separating from the church. They're schismatics, which is the opposite of abiding. They are from the world. And so in the Greek, what this means, that word Christ, does anybody know what the word Christ in the Greek means? Anybody have any ideas? Sorry, I'm looking pointedly at people that I think I know. <laughs> yeah, anointed. That's right. Thank you, Hanna, for set, setting me up for, for the, at the plate. Um, anointed. Christ means anointed one. And it's the Greek version of the, you know, uh, transliterated from the Hebrew Messiah. So Hebrew Messiah means anointed one. The Jews were looking for one who would be anointed by God in a specific way to be their anointed king. Just like King David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, this one would be anointed to reign uh, forever and ever. Um, And so there is this longing for this anointed one to come. And as Christians, they understood the anointing that was on Jesus Christ to also be upon them as followers of Jesus Christ who possessed the power of the Holy Spirit who dwelled within them. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. John here is juxtaposing those who are anointed with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit with this counter-anointing, this reverse filling, um, being possessed by a spirit of error and by the evil one instead of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, you are not like them, and they are not like you. Never the two will meet. And yet, take heart. Again, even as those who oppose Jesus Christ are of the world, remember, take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. Okay, any thoughts or questions about that? About Antichrist? It's a tough word. It's a weird, like, why is that in Scripture, and why, how is that helpful? It's helpful when we see people saying that they're Christians, but saying things about Jesus that are not in Scripture, and that are not true, and that we know are not true. It helps us be able to say, no, that's not right. That's not what Jesus said about himself. That's not what the apostles say about Jesus in Scripture. 
The anointing that you receive from Jesus abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Well, there's, um, I'm just going to go on, I know I only have one more minute, but I'm going to go on to just talk about how, um, how Jesus, uh, what John falls down upon in this overcoming the world. Um, overcoming error is something that Christians do. Um, he says, um, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, to the apostles, John is saying. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And his final word in John, 1 John 5 is that um, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is the final word on this that John, first John, or that John has in this first letter. Jesus overcomes the world, and because we believe in him, because we believe in his work on our behalf in the past, we in the past have overcome the world. Um, there is this past tense. This is the victory that has overcome the world. The past tense of God's work on our behalf in Jesus Christ gives us strength in the present and gives us hope for the future. And that strength in the present and that hope for the future um, is that we trust that God has overcome all of the evil that's around us. And so when we see that evil, when we read about evil in the news or we hear about it so palpably in the news or we see things, we see other people doing things that just seem evil to us or when we're in the grips of an illness that is so evil, I just would say cancer itself is evil. And we can say that as Christians and say it is not part of the beauty of creation. It's part of the fallenness of creation. And God has overcome it in Jesus Christ. And he will bring victory at the last day, even if it doesn't seem like it right now. And so that's where I take heart now. That's the only thing that can give us strength to face the sin without, the, way, uh, the sin within, and the suffering and the hardship in this life is to say God has overcome it in Jesus Christ. He will give us the strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a new way. And he also will give us that Holy Spirit perspective on the events of the world around us and on the suffering in our own lives. Any thoughts about that before I pray? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your death for us. And I thank you that there, as you were bearing the sins of the world upon your shoulders, you were also... um, Uh, defeating death even as you succumb to death you defeated death and so I thank you Lord that even even though we die in this life even though we experience suffering and sorrow and sin um, that sticks to us and clings to us even though we experience all of those aspects of the world within us and outside of us even the lies of people that we thought we could trust Lord even so you are trustworthy and we know that by your death you have defeated death and you have conquered the world. And so we ask that you would give us strength and courage, even as we go out from here, to look at the world around us with eyes that are empowered by you, to see um, the truth of who you are and what it is that you've done for us as we face the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.